3: at least 15 times in that interview. Thank you. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader Lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Bono and Eisen. Coming up on Fast, a social shutdown. The pressure mounting on Facebook as more high-profile advertisers pull out. We are breaking down the big money impact straight ahead. Plus, shares of Micron popping in the after hours after reporting results. The company's conference call is now underway. We'll bring you all the big headlines from the quarter. And later, break out the candles. Tesla is celebrating 10 years as a public company. So, will the next decade... Be just as electric. One of Tesla's biggest bulls will join us straight ahead. But we start off with breaking news on the banks. Let's get straight to Leslie Baker for the very latest. Leslie,
4: hey Melissa. We've seen a flurry of press releases from banks announcing plans with regard to their dividends, and some uh, announcing that those uh, plans with regard to their dividends will come at a future date. One of those includes Wells Fargo, which said that it its third quarter dividend will be reduced from the current level of 51 cents per share. They did not mention what level it will be reduced to, only to say that that announcement will come in conjunction with its July 14th earnings. Uh, Another company that analysts had on kind of its watch list for potential dividend cuts was Capital One. Uh, They announced their stress capital buffer requirement at 5.6%, but did not make any mention of what it plans to do with its dividend in the press release that we have seen so far. And the press releases keep coming. Not all the banks have announced yet, so we still have an eye out. Uh, Of the companies, though, that have reaffirmed their dividends, uh, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America are some of the big ones that have already reaffirmed their dividend based on the Fed stress test requirements from last week. Melissa.
3: Just to underscore, Leslie, JP Morgan has not issued a release yet. Not correct? that we
4: have seen, correct.
3: Got it. Leslie Picker, thank you. Keep us updated. Karen Feiernavin, we go straight to you, longtime holder of the banks. What do you make of these announcements? Uh, Wells yes. Fargo, by the way, basically reversing today's gains in the after-hour session.
5: Right. I actually bought some Wells Fargo after hours when it traded down on this. Um, I haven't owned it for years and years, probably since since 2010, maybe. I bought some on Friday. I bought some today when it sort of reversed the gains. I mean, Wells Fargo started today up with an 8% yield. So nobody thinks that an 8% yield is what the ongoing yield is going to be for Wells Fargo. So to me, that they announced that they are looking to cut their dividend, is not news in any way at all. And uh, I actually think once we know the dividend, whatever it is, however low it is, that the stock will actually trade up. So I like Wells Fargo here. I'd like to hear what J.P. Morgan's doing. Hopefully it's uneventful. Um, But I think this uh, it's reasonable so far what we've seen. It wouldn't shock me, though, if when they have to sort of resubmit plans for the next time, the next dividend that if things are materially worse, that maybe the Fed gives them cover and says, you know what, nobody, nobody can do repurchases and nobody can do um, dividends. That wouldn't shock me, um, but I don't know that the Fed would, would, would do that. Look um, at, but look so at, far, I think nothing dramatically has changed.
3: Look at Karen putting on a trader cap guide Dami. Would you agree with that?
6: <laughs> it's fantastic. No, I understand what she's looking at for sure. I mean, I, and Karen knows this and we talk about it all the time. I mean, Wells Fargo's been an awful stock now for quite some time, a lot of it self-inflicted. One would think the housing numbers today should provide some sort of a tailwind if you just sort of connect the dots. But, you know, it it doesn't trade well. It's trading at a discount to tangible book, which is in and of itself telling. You know, I understand why you'd want to dip your toe ahead of earnings in a couple weeks. But, you know, I'd much rather them say something today definitive than have to wait for two weeks. So, I can understand starting position here, but I still think Wells Fargo is in no touch for me.
3: In terms of the banks in general, Bono, I'm, I'm wondering if you think this is a sigh of relief that these companies are coming out saying, you know, we're going to reaffirm our dividend, et cetera, or if, if the, uh, just a specter of resubmission later on is still enough of an overhang to keep you away.
2: Um, I reiterate a lot of what Guy had to say. Uh, to answer your first question, I do think, at least from a posturing or, or publicity standpoint, it definitely shows that the banks are are in a strong position um or stronger position than feared um i still think the name of the game here 100 percent is capital preservation and every every option at our disposal should be used to make sure that we do not have um a meltdown like we had about a decade ago um so again capital preservation being the um number one thing so i I wouldn't be surprised to see dividends even restricted um a bit further um mind you that a lot of large banks came out early and um you no, know, came out early, voluntarily suspended buybacks and, and curbed, uh, curbed dividends here. So personally, uh, Wells Fargo, I, I'm going to say away early on. Um, I think some of the larger money center, money center banks, J.P. Morgan, uh, names that are, are a bit more household and have stronger balance sheets, those are the type of names, and less headline risk. Those would be the type of names that I would dip my toes in with.
3: Tim, I don't know if you caught this note from Morgan Stanley today uh, outlining the five states with rising COVID cases, overlaying that with the, with the exposure that certain banks have. Um, deposit-wise, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, top of the list when it comes to the larger bank. There are a number of regional banks as well. But I'm, I'm just wondering if, if this is something that even the COVID overlay that the Fed is putting on the banks may not be enough or at least may not be enough to convince investors that uh, they're really being put under stress
7: if you're investing in banks you're investing on the expectations of loan loss which you know the Q the q1 numbers were very conservative uh, we've got earnings in two weeks i don't think you need to to speculate Why don't you wait for those numbers but you're not necessarily investing in banks based upon their divs uh, i will say that if you remember uh, about two years ago it was banks some of the big money center banks were actually trying to fail uh, their, their stress test because it's, it's a measure of how aggressive they can be with their balance sheet. And there's no question that uh, the banks are under the thumb of the Fed. And I won't get into should they be. Uh, it's their own fault uh, nationalizing the banks. We talk about what the Fed has done. But if you're investing in banks, um, you're, you also have to know. Here's another headline from today. Banks made record profits around record issuance attached to the pandemic. So everybody not only went as far as they could go on their revolvers, but we've had uh, essentially record corporate Issuance. So banks do have that as a tailwind going into 2Q earnings. But there's nothing that came out after the bell, just like there was really nothing that came out that should have been surprising uh, you know, a week and a half ago when we got these numbers out on the stress test. So um, you're investing in banks because you're a long-term investor and believe they are healthier and because you believe that the valuations relative to themselves and relative to their ability to take risk are, 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 are of value. And, and uh, banks have underperformed in the last month and a half.
3: Well, our next guest believes every bank, every bank should suspend its dividend. Let's bring in Sheila Baer. She ran the FDIC during the financial crisis, is now director of the Volgar Alliance. Sheila, great to have you with us.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: Why don't you believe what the Fed is telling us in terms of the bank's ability to pay dividends?
0: Well, I... I, I think that we don't know. Uh, the situation is highly uncertain. We're in a very, uh, very severe situation, unprecedented, much much more uh, tougher than previous stress tests or what they were assuming in February. So I, I think it's just common sense to keep that capital on bank balance sheet. The best and highest use of capital right now is to stay on bank balance sheets. That way it can support lending. It can, it can support expanded deposit taking. It can support the real economy, which, which is their function. I do think it's really important to understand as part of this discussion that the Fed has been providing capital relief. The Fed and other regulators have been lowering capital minimums, which makes bank balance sheets more fragile. And I understand some of that may be necessary because banks do need to expand their capacity when you get into a situation like that. But a better way to do that is to retain capital, keep those dividends on the balance sheet. That also expands lending and deposit taking capacity without weakening the bank. Um, And, you know, if I'm wrong, if we uh, get out of this just fine, then later they can do a special dividend, distribute that capital then. But right now, given uncertainties, I really think it needs to stay with the bank.
3: What do you think is not being factored in? I mean, do you think loan losses will be much greater than anybody thinks, Sheila? Well, do yeah,
0: you- I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. So, there, so, so first of all, there are a lot of loans that are in forbearance. Banks don't really know whether those are going to come back or not. They're not being reflected in bank capital now because uh, basically the CARES Act said if you're in forbearance, you can't cre- teach, treat that as troubled debt, which, which is fine, but that means you don't get a higher capital charge as you ordinarily would. So we don't know how many, a lot of those loans are going to be rehabilitated. A lot of them aren't. Uh, they made a lot about, they've done a lot of provisioning for Cecil in the first quarter that was significant addition to loan loss reserves, but that's not deducted against capital. Usually it is. So these are all things that tend to inflate, uh, risk, uh, risk-based capital ratios. The other thing that bothered me about the, last week's announcement was the sensitivity analysis didn't, didn't tell us what was going on with their leverage ratios. So they're only using risk-based ratios, which are important, uh, but they have a lot of problems, and this, that's why as part of the post-great financial crisis reforms, we said we need a simple leverage ratio, too, to backstop risk-based measures because risk-based measures can be unreliable. And the great financial crisis that everybody said mortgage sec- sec- mortgage securities and derivatives were low risk and look what happened there, so they're not using the leverage ratio anymore to test the financial strength of the uh, of the banks in this situation. And if you look at the at the the uh, ESLR, the, the enhanced supplementary leverage ratio, which in my view is one of the most important for the biggest banks, even in the February analysis, you saw you know banks like Goldman Sachs were dec- down, dipping down to 3.5 percent as part of the most uh, adverse uh, scenario. And that, that is not as adverse as what we're, we're dealing with now. So uh, I, I do think there are a lot of questions in addition to the economic uncertainties, a lot of difficulty now just looking through all this and trying to figure out just how, banks, how strong banks are. So again, keep that capital on balance sheets. If I'm wrong, do a big uh, special dividend. But what we can't afford is to have banks get in trouble again. And then we not only have an economic crisis, we have a financial crisis as well. And that would be absolutely devastating for our economy.
5: Uh, Sheila, it's Karen. Thanks for being on our show. Let me just ask you as, sure. a, as a bank shareholder, playing devil's yes. advocate, what, what if they just continue this incrementally allowing um, every quarter a reassessment of bank dividends? And if it ends up in a bad, worst case scenario the, that could happen, then the worst that will happen, they would have paid out one dividend, one quarter's dividend beyond what they should have and maintained some income for for shareholders that are very dividend-focused.
0: So, you know, once that capital's out, it's never coming back. So let's look at what happened in the first quarter. And there are a couple of banks where, you know, Wells and J.P. Morgan Chase, I believe, distributed substantially more than they earned in capital. They were depleting their capital in the first quarter. We're not going to get that back. $30 Thirty billion dollars, 30 billion dollars in dividends was dividended up from FDIC insured banks up to the holding company, where most of that was distributed to public shareholders. If that thirty billion dollars had stayed on bank balance sheets, you could expand the capacity by about a half a trillion dollars. That's significant support for the real economy right now. but that, that capital is gone. It's not coming back at the same time. the Fed is lowering capital standards to allow these banks to take on more leverage. So listen, I'm a shareholder, I sympathize with shareholders. I've actually tried to make suggestions as well that if banks think their shares are undervalued, and I think a lot of them do, pay a dividend in kind too. Pay your shareholders more stock. If they want to they if they need cash, they can sell it in the secondary market or they can hold on to it with tremendous upside potential. You can do that without compromising your your financial position, but to, to pay cash dividends now, especially the size that they're paying, even at 30%, it's a lot of money. It's just ill-advised, given the tremendous economic uncertainty that we have right. and the need that we have for banks to keep functioning. You know, banks have a special deal that others don't have. They get deposit insurance. They get special access to all these Fed liquidity facilities. A lot of those trading profits and all those underwriting fees that they're getting right now, That's because of the Fed. That's because of government intervention. Mm -hmm. So I know shareholders want those profits to flow to them. But, you know, a lot of those profits are coming from government support, not for anything that, you know, discrete things that the bank managers are doing and to say, okay, now let's let's shoot it all out to shareholders when we don't know. How serious this could be, and, and uh, whether banks could be in trouble later on in the year. Right. I just think that's ill-advised. So hold off for now. Wait. When we have a better picture, then pay it out if it's if it's warranted.
3: Sheila, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it.
0: Sure, Sheila Bear, Um for having me.
3: Guide on me quickly in terms. Of, I mean, it, it's an interesting notion to pay a special dividend. Hold off on all the dividends now, and for shareholders to believe in the strength of the bank, you'll get it later on.
6: Yeah, I happen to agree with pretty much everything she just said. I'll say this, and I could be dead wrong, but I think it's going to take a bank like J.P. Morgan, who has clearly risen to the upper echelon, given a number of different things, least of which their valuation, to make that decision, because I think that will give air cover to the rest of the bank. So I think somebody like J.P. Morgan has to do it first. The other ones will uh, follow in kind.
3: All right, we got some breaking news on Boeing. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau. Phil.
8: Hey Melissa, let's take a live picture from just outside of Boeing Field in Seattle, Washington. This is the 737 MAX coming back from the second of its certification flights today. This one was out at Moses Lake. They flew out there this morning. Now they're coming back, uh, conducting a number of specific maneuvers that are part of the arrangement that they have with the FAA when they do these flights, saying exactly what they're going to do. The FAA says we want to see X, Y, and Z. They go through all of those maneuvers. So as you see, the MAX coming in to land in Boeing Field. Keep in mind, they have two more days of certification flights, and then they take all the data. By the way, they're recording all this on board as well as on the ground. They take all that data, they do analysis on it, and it all is part of the final submission that Boeing will make for the MAX to be ungrounded. And again, Boeing's target for the MAX to be ungrounded is by late summer. That, if it happens, means that we could potentially see Commercial flights, revenue flights for the 737 MAX starting by maybe November, December, sometime in that time frame, depending on how long it takes airlines to get their pilots uh, trained under the new procedures. But there you have it, the MAX returning from its second certification flight of the day. Melissa?
3: Phil, you had mentioned a series of certification flights in each flight. Is the MCAS triggered?
8: Uh, I, I would assume that it is, but, but I don't know specifically, Melissa. Uh, you, look, that's the main thing feature that they're going to be looking at uh, to see if the software has been updated to the guidelines uh, and the specifications that the FAA is going to be looking for. Now, whether or not they do it on every single flight, do they do it multiple times, how often they do it, we don't know for sure. But you you know, that is the main focus of uh, what's going on in terms of making sure the MAX is safe.
3: All right, Phil, thank you. Philubeau, and it does look like the plane has successfully landed there in Everett, Washington. Uh, the stock, again, up 14 uh, percent in the regular session. Tim?
7: Well, it, this, is, this is the kind of news that Boeing shareholders, of which I am, want to see. It doesn't get you past the FAA. And I think Boeing will go out of their way with the charm offensive to make sure that they are not getting ahead of the FAA. At the same time, other news, after the bell, uh, Norwegian Air has canceled 97 uh, deliveries and has filed a suit against Boeing for damages. So they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, to clean up relationships within the industry. And I think, you know, again, the the management changes go a long way towards that. I think the folks at the helm really have those commercial airline uh, uh, relationships, especially on the chairman's level. So I think this is something to to really watch. It doesn't change the demand dynamics for the industry. Uh, And we still, you know, as as COVID-19, the the data that we're quoting and Morgan Stanley's data, whatever you want to look at, um, it's not, it doesn't bode well for a quick return to air. But this is what this was. This was weighing down Boeing well into this crisis. Uh, this is a very, very important day.
3: Yeah. I mean, when Phil said November as revenue generating flights in the 737 Max Bono, and I was thinking, who, who's going to be on the plane? I mean, first of all, you've got the COVID scare and then you're sort of in the back of your mind mm-hmm. thinking about the fatal crashes with the 737 Max, maybe thinking I'm not going to be the first one on that plane.
2: You know what, I couldn't have said it any better, so aside aside from the financial dynamics that Boeing has to overcome, along with the rest of the travel sector, I would say there's still real psychological hurdles that Boeing is going to have to overcome in terms of uh, the the tragedies that happened in uh, March, I believe. Um, and, and just really kind of like retouching with their customer base. At the end of the day, I mean, uh, our life is the most precious asset that we have. And I think that they are going to have to, as Tim mentioned, go on the charm offensive and also work with the FAA to, to ensure that they are up to quality standards.
3: All right. Absolutely. Uh, we've got some breaking news meantime on Hong Kong. Let's get to Kayla Tashi. Kayla.
9: Melissa, the Trump administration is officially revoking the special trading status of Hong Kong. The Commerce Department just out with a release moments ago saying that the preferential economic treatment of Hong Kong as excluded from certain tariffs and customs control is being suspended in the wake of the controversial national security law that Beijing is moving forward with in Hong Kong. President Trump had said that he was instructing the administration to move forward with a revocation of this status, but it was unclear exactly how or when it would be pursued. But it is now official with this Commerce Department statement. And what remains to be seen, Melissa, is whether the U.S. will also push for the removal of Hong Kong as an independent member of the World Trade Organization. But as of today, it appears that commerce is restricting or rescinding, rather, uh, that special preferential trading treatment of Hong Kong. Back to you.
3: Kayla, is the bottom line that capital flows into and out of Hong Kong will be the same as as it is for China, as restrictive? That is
9: what it appears to be at this moment. The statement that the Commerce released this afternoon is very short. It is very curt. Uh, It doesn't go into great detail about exactly how this will be applied. We are efforting more details from the White House and the National Security Council, as well as the State Department, as to how exactly this is going to be applied. Now, a lot of people have said uh, there's not that much trade that comes through Hong Kong uh, to the United States, but certainly Hong Kong, by many multinational corporations, is a premier financial hub for their Asian operations. And this could certainly challenge uh, that location as the headquarters for many of these organizations because of that.
3: All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington with the latest. Um, We go to Tim Seymour, who uh, in another lifetime on Fast Money was known as the ambassador because of his specialty in emerging markets and international uh, markets. Uh, But Tim, you know, when Kayla was was talking about this, I was thinking about all of the companies that were seeking a dual listing in Hong Kong, that were listed here in the United States, and who rushed to get that deal done on the Hong Kong exchange, maybe before it closes off to uh, outside companies.
7: And and guess what? This was a total boom to their market caps. And it was actually, it was a catalyst to a lot of the Chinese e-commerce names to go to all-time highs, like significant all-time highs. So um, this this is a really difficult day, because I think in terms of the geopolitics here, uh, I think it's important to make a stand. I think the Trump administration at times in the early stages of some of even the Hong Kong protests was uh, not ready to make a clear stand. They are making a clear stand. And I think uh, it's necessary for the world to make a clear stand here. So um, uh, what it's meant for for trading, both emerging markets and those companies who trade in Hong Kong and trade here, um, so far no damage. And again, getting that extra liquidity to trading on that side of the world has actually meant that a lot of the, the, the trading volume in 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 Hong Kong and in local Chinese markets uh, at times can dwarf even some of the trading here. I know it's hard to believe, but at least in the names that have done those registrations. So um, really important, really important as a coincident event. And maybe they're related, Melissa, as you're pointing out. But uh, in the meantime, these stocks have not suffered. They're near all-time highs. All
3: right. We had a big rally, of course, on Wall Street today as Fed Chair Jerome Powell gears up to deliver remarks before Congress tomorrow. Don she has been pouring through that pre-release testimony. He's got the details. done,
10: Yeah, specifically, Melissa, to the House Financial Services Committee. In it, you're not going to see a lot of fireworks, at least in the prepared remarks, because what he will be doing is Fed Chair Jay Powell will be going through and reiterating the steps that the Fed has taken to help combat the economic downturn due to the COVID vaccine or virus. We already know all the steps they've taken. But he did make some interesting remarks with regard to characterizing the current state of financial and economic affairs. He talks about this notion, and I'm quoting directly from the prepared testimony here, that many businesses are opening their doors, hiring is picking up, And spending is increasing. Employment moved higher. We are in an important new phase and have done so sooner than expected. While the bounce back in economic activity is welcome, it also presents challenges, notably the need to keep the virus in check. He goes on to say that the path forward for the economy is extraordinarily uncertain and will depend in large part on our success in containing the virus. A full recovery is unlikely until people are confident that it is safe to re-engage in a broad range of activities. He then goes on to talk a little bit about the extraordinary measures taking place and whether the Fed has overstepped its bounds. In it, he says, the tools that the Federal Reserve is using under its authority are for for times of emergency, such as the ones we we are living through now. When economic and financial conditions improve, we will put those tools back in the toolbox those are some of the highlights. But, again, a lot of this will go into reiterating the steps that have been taken. We'll listen for the Q&A, obviously, to see if there's any kind of real, real news that gets made there, Melissa. Back over to you guys.
3: Uh, Dom, thank you. Dom Chu. You know, Karen, if I were just listening to the Fed's comments about the economy, I'd be pretty depressed, except for the fact that the Fed has extraordinary tools, which it continues to use.
5: Yeah, I mean, we're just levitating on those tools. So, um I mean, that's been a good thing. And I don't see that changing at all. Remember, we talked about how downbeat he was, uh, Powell was, a week or two ago. And, um, you know, and some, that gives some people comfort that the Fed thinks things are bad, so they're still there. And that's been the right, the
3: right trade. Bad news is good news. Wins the day again. <laughs> Coming up, check out shares of Micron on the move after reporting earnings. We will bring you the results next and later. There is one airline feeling the love today as Goldman gave them a double upgrade. The name and trade straight ahead on Fast.
0: Welcome
3: back to Fast Money. We have got an earnings alert on Micron. Shares of the chipmaker soaring in the after hours off its latest quarterly results. Let's get to Josh Lipton with the latest. Josh.
12: So, Melissa, uh, Micron reporting on uh, beating there on the top and the bottom. The Q4 guidance that was better than expected too. Q4, they're looking for a buck five plus or minus 10 cents. The street was at 81 cents and revenue 5.75 uh, to 6.25 billion. The street was closer to 5.7. $4, $8 billion for their Q4. I did catch up uh, with Mitch Steves over at RBC. I asked him uh, what he make of the print. He said, listen, material raise across the board. The biggest upside in gross margins, he thought, improving significantly there. Demand appears better than feared. I asked him why he continues to rate Micron a buy. He says uh, banking on server demand, he told me, remaining strong in the back half of the year. We should know it's not just Micron either. Check out Western Digital Intel. They're both higher in the after hours as well, among other chip names. CEO Sanjay Marotra on the call, uh, in terms of his forecast what he 's seeing looking ahead he he did emphasize at least short term the visibility is somewhat limited, not surprisingly due to the pandemic and broader macroeconomic challenges, but he said he does expect the data center to stay healthy, smartphones should improve, he forecasts. As 5G gains traction. And new gaming consoles, we know we're on the way. He thinks that'll help demand, too. And by the way, Sanjay Morocha will be on CNBC tomorrow morning, that interview live and exclusive. So tune in for that. Melissa, back to you.
3: All right, Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton, of course, Mike Ronebell, weather for memory prices and memory chip stocks, Guy.
6: Yeah, and the good news here, the one I take away with is operating margins came in at 18%, which is a pretty strong number for them. I'm surprised, to be honest with you. It's not higher. The stock's not higher in the after hours. So this was a $54 stock, I think, on June 8th. And if I'm looking right now, it's at $52. I really thought it would be higher. I think what you need here is a breakout above that 54 level. Um, valuation might be a tad stretched. Xilinx, same thing. You know, it, It's had a big move in the after hours, but you need a breakout above, I think, 102 there. So although these quarters are very strong, we're still not to levels we saw a few weeks ago which, to me at least, is a wee bit concerning.
3: Yeah. Tim?
7: Well, so they had pretty so A lot of these numbers, I think, people already knew about. It's the outlook that's pretty good. Um, demand in data center and PC, very good. The other thing I think supporting prices and really should be supporting the entire sector is they talked about supply, about being cautious, um, and, and that you know things like gaming are, are actually increasing the demand side of DRAM and NAND. So um, very good numbers, but even better on the outlook, agree. Uh, I think this stock will... Take some of this momentum even higher into tomorrow's session.
3: All right, let's switch gears here. The pressure is mounting on Facebook. More big-name companies joining an advertising boycott. The latest, HP, Adidas, and Reebok. They join other high-profile companies like Verizon, Starbucks, and Coca-Cola who have all pulled their ads from the social media site. Um and, you know, when it was first a handful of names, a lot of people were ready to discount this. We didn't on this show, but I'm wondering, uh, you know, if Facebook at this point is is investable.
2: I I still think it's investable I mean at the end of the day um, it's still a Titan of the industry Um, but I will say there does seem to be a little bit of momentum picking up here Um, but again what we what we're seeing are large headline names I think Starbucks was the largest of those large names in terms of uh, uh, revenue allocation But, uh, you know, the bulk of the customer base here are going to be small and medium-sized businesses. So I'm really curious to see if there's some trickle-down theory um, or or effect in terms of the boycotts. But uh, as it stands, I mean, I still think your 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 long-term bull is the name. Uh, With that said, there is going to be somewhat um, of an overhang on the name. But as we've seen in so many other of these large tech names, um, you know, it might be an opportunity to kind of uh, retrench.
3: Yeah, Karen, you were making that point earlier when we were chatting about this whole thing, that the bulk of Facebook's advertisers are small and mid-cap companies. A lot of them are direct-to-consumer. For a lot of them, if they boycotted, that would really hurt them much more so than a
5: Coca-Cola. Right, and I don't think they get... I mean, if you think about big corporate America right now, the more more that pile on and, and sort of suspend their Facebook advertising, the rest of them feel that they need to do the same thing. And they're just hoping that Facebook gives them enough makes a statement that gives them enough cover that they could go back to using Facebook because it's so effective for advertisers. But if you look, it is it is one of the least concentrated businesses. You know, the top ten make up very little. So, you know, as Bonwin pointed out, it's all the, you know, so many small businesses and they don't get the bang for their buck making a big statement that, you know, we're gonna suspend our advertising from Facebook. But you know, we've seen them weather many, many storms before. And, you know, I'm talking my book because I am a long-term Facebook shareholder. I think that they will weather this one as well.
3: The, the way they've weathered the storm, though, in the past, Guy, is that we've always made the argument, and it's always been the case, that the advertisers will still go to Facebook because uh, that's where the eyeballs are. So are we seeing mm-hmm. maybe that shift in terms of that power I dynamic? I think we're
6: seeing it shift. No, I mean to Karen's point, they have, well, they have eight million advertisers, and the Lions share obviously these small mm-hmm. to mid-sized businesses. I totally understand that. So, to a certain degree, they're still insulated from all of this. But, you know, the, the the they they definitely are now in the crosshairs in terms of what's going on. Now, the good news for the stock is you had a huge reversal today on two times normal volume. So at least you have something to trade against in the form of the low it put in today of 207 or so, and I think the report on July 22nd, but. Again, we talked about this last week with REI and Patagonia and North Face. I think that was on Tuesday. They were the first. They won't be the last. And I'll continue to say that. What you're taking away from today, though, is the stock is seemingly impervious. That 207 level is what you trade against on the long side.
3: All right. Let's talk more about the impact of this growing ad boycott. Joining us now is MediaLink CEO Michael Casson. Michael, great to have you with us. Um, you say that this is a seminal moment. Thank Why? Michael.
1: Well, I think, um, you know, you were making the point about uh, the SMBs, the small and medium-sized businesses, versus that of the large multinational advertisers, and there does seem to be a, 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 a movement. But that movement is really being tempered, I think, in the marketplace. You're reading headlines. And I read one headline that kind of concerned me as as a student of the advertising industry, which was so-and-so up the ante as if it was a competition between brands. And I, I'd like to think it's not. I'd like to think this is really the moment where progress could be made on behalf of the marketing community. We have organizations that are doing this. We have something that has gotten a lot of traction. The uh, GARM is the uh, is the name for it the Global Alliance for Responsible Media there are places in which marketers should be convening and convening to have those conversations yes we all see that sometimes you can move markets by utilizing your your checkbooks obviously but I think the point that was made just a moment ago about the small and medium-sized businesses they don't have a lot of optionality and and the reality is uh, Main Street and, and Wall Street and, if you will, uh, Sand Hill Road are not necessarily aligned here uh, relative uh, relative to what the marketers are saying. Look the marketers are saying they need movement, they need action and they're, they're saying that with their checkbooks and I think, you know, to Facebook's credit over the last several days maybe they should have moved faster and I think that's probably true. Uh, but I think they have stepped up over the last several days to pay attention, to listen, and to make some serious moves right. uh, in regards to what the advertisers right. are saying.
3: Sure. And I, I th- do think it's, I agree with you, it's a powerful statement for these companies to say, you know what, we are going to vote with our checkbooks. We're going to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, by donating the money to the organizations that support this boycott, Michael. But I, I'm wondering, because this is also happening at a time of, of economic uncertainty, and I'm sure a lot of companies were reevaluating their ad budgets anyway. Could this mark the time where, where companies... May seriously reduce, permanently reduce, or permanently walk away from Facebook?
1: No, I, I don't. I don't think so, Michelle. And I think that uh, social media in general is going to be subject to different kinds of views from marketers. But there is a bit of a conflation here, and and one can't help but realize that everybody is reimagining their marketing budgets in the context of COVID and other things that are happening. And I'm not suggesting that there's anything cynical here, but I would suggest uh, that that is part of why advertisers might have chosen this particular moment uh, to make these kinds of statements relative to how their marketing budgets are shrinking in general, at least in the short run.
3: All right, Michael, great to speak with you. In the next time we talk, it's Melissa, by the way. (laughs) Thank you, Michael Kasson.
1: (laughs) You
5: got it,
3: Melissa. Thank you. I, I get that all the time. Believe me. Apparently, there's a famous actress in the 70s or something named Michelle. Anyway, um, Tim Seymour. There it is, is.
1: I actually know her. So there you go. Oh,
3: Gina. It's for real.
1: still there.
3: All right, Tim. What do you think of Facebook? Uh,
7: so um, I, I think it's, first of all, very interesting that we haven't heard from Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, I, noticeably, uh, you know, by, by her absence, she's normally very involved here. Um, I do think that Facebook is going to come around. I, I just think that this whole brand safety issue on the corporate level is something uh, they, they're very worried about, and I think uh, there's an ability to, to, to actually control that environment. And there's companies like Double Verify or other companies that actually tell advertisers what context they're being viewed and whether this is good or bad. I don't think Facebook is going to radically change what they do uh, unless there's a new regime over there. And again, that's not the body language we've gotten so far. But I do think that there will be winners uh, in the media space as social media is taking a hit. And, and there are so many new online platforms of which this network has one as well. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there that can be the beneficiaries in a, you know, in a headwind uh, ad, you know, digital ad environment. I think this is going to be very good for some people.
3: Yeah, and Sandberg had been the person on the front of the scandal, like doing the charm offensive in the past. I mean, Karen, you were just commenting on that today as well.
5: Yeah, I think that um, I'm sure she's doing a lot of that right now, not in front of uh, Congress, but certainly to these major advertisers. And, uh, you know, I just go back to they're, they're begging her or, and Zuckerberg to give them cover to go back to Facebook. That's what they want to do. So I think, you know, we talked about are they going to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. They will for a month is sort of what they're holding out there. We're going to suspend through July.
3: Coming up, break out the bubbly because we are celebrating. (laughs) Happy anniversary, Tesla. We'll take a trip down memory lane looking back at what has changed over the past 10 years and what is ahead for electric vehicles. Plus, Speaking of love, one airline feeling it today soaring higher as Goldman gave it a big boost. Those details are ahead. Much more Fast Money after this quick break.
9: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is
11: knowing what counts
9: Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you.
4: EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
10: When people look at the list of investors uh, that, that are part of this IPO, they'll be amazed at the quality um, and strength of, of the investor group
8: in Tesla.
3: That was Tesla CEO Elon Musk speaking to our own Phil LeBeau. Ten years ago today, when Tesla went public at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square, a lot has happened since that IPO. The stock has gone from 17 bucks a share to nearly $1,000. Its market cap has exploded from just $1.7 billion at the time of the IPO to almost $184 billion. And the gains, a monstrous 5,837 percent over the past decade tesla's big anniversary comes the same day ev maker nikola starts taking pre-orders for its badger pickup truck we spoke with nikola founder and executive chairman trevor milton on friday and he was pretty excited
8: it's the coolest electric truck pickup truck the world's ever seen so um, yeah it's a big day on monday and uh, and also those reservations turn into um Tickets for Nikola World happening in December when we show off the Badger. So it's just a, the next four or five months is just going to be a, a, an incredibly fun time.
3: The coolest electric pickup truck the world has ever seen, except for the world hasn't actually seen it because it hasn't actually been made yet. Um, minor detail. But the question here is, can it take on Tesla's Cybertruck? Let's bring in Kathy Woods, CEO and CIO at ARK Invest. Kathy, great to have you with us.
11: Thank you, Melissa. Very happy to be here. Your firm sounds
3: very skeptical based on the research reports I've read about Nikola of Nikola. And I'm wondering, in your view, what is different from Nikola today versus Tesla when it IPO 10 years ago and it only had a roadster in Times Square?
11: Sure. Uh, Well, I think the biggest difference is uh, the right technology. Um, We did a... um, uh, uh you know white white sheet of paper research at the beginning of arc and uh, just mapped out uh, what a uh, an electric vehicle cost decline would look like uh, versus a hydrogen and as we were doing that research uh, we realized there the infrastructure alone uh, for hydrogen fueling stations is going to be five to ten Times as expensive as the infrastructure for electric, and then from the consumer's point of view, it is going to cost uh, roughly three times as much uh, so this is a seven hundred thousand mile truck lease uh, and if you if you tally up the cost to the trucker for the hydrogen. It will be three times as much as the cost would be for electricity. So uh, the technology is what Tesla got right.
3: Is there no economy of scale once that infrastructure is put in place down the line? Because what's different about Nikola also is that they're selling basically a bundle where you have the truck and they're also selling the fuel at the same time. So if they can get that cost of the fuel down, the hydrogen down, that, that's just money that they, that they capture.
11: Yeah, if they're able to do that, we don't think they uh, will be able to do that. But let's just take the assumptions that they made uh, on the or in preparing for the IPO. Uh, And you take uh, take their cash flow out in 2024, where, you know, they've got everything um, moving their way uh, perfectly. And what we have here now is a stock selling at twenty four billion dollars market cap for about 110 times cash flow. And if you take Tesla by comparison today, our bear case uh, without ride hailing is seven to eight times cash flow in uh, 2024. And if you include ride hailing, which we think they will launch this year, uh, and that's human driven ride hailing, uh, it's five to six times cash flow. So there's just no comparison. You know, the other interesting thing is this management team has come from the old world. I mean, I'm looking at steel and aluminum and natural gas. And, um, you know, those are mature industries. We're talking about uh, exponential growth here, and that's their attempt. We don't think they will succeed, uh, but we don't think they've got the right DNA to begin with.
6: Hey, Kathy, congratulations. You've probably been the most outspoken bull on the name. And this is not a gotcha question. I think this is just an opportunity to explain something to the audience. You know, I don't think anybody's more bullish than you are, yet you pretty actively trade around a long position. Can you explain to people why you guys and gals do that?
11: Sure. Well, uh, you'll notice that in our flagship fund, Tesla is our largest position. It's about 10% right now. Uh, as it rises above 10%, we can only, only buy up to 10%. When it rises above 10%, say to 12%, 13%, uh, and sometimes just a little above 10 you will find us taking profits. And the reason for that is, and we do this with all of our stocks, disruptive innovation is inherently controversial. Uh, and so we know we can lie in and wait and find and, and have another opportunities as uh, bears really focused on the short term hand hand um, those opportunities to us regularly. Uh, Tesla, our trading activity in Tesla alone last year, forget about the fact it was up 35 percent, just our trading activity around the incredible volatility, um, delivered 300 basis points of performance. And in 2018, another volatile year, but that was a down market year. Our trading alone in Tesla uh, contributed 175 basis points. So trading around controversy, uh, controversy pays off. No, that said, Guy, uh, it never went below our top position. That I want to be very clear about.
5: Kathy, it's Karen. Kathy, Let me ask you
2: so in me- just a second. The, 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 oh, go ahead, bon. Uh Kathy, thank you so much for making yourself available. Um, I wanted to ask, in terms of your upside scenario, would you mind providing a little bit of guidance in terms of how much of the autonomous driving space uh, market share Tesla needs to capture in order to achieve those goals?
11: Well, you can see all of our estimates, and you can scenario test this on GitHub. We've put our model up there. Uh, We have assumed for our bull case, which is way out there, I mean, our our base case is roughly $7,000. Our bear case before ride hailing is $1,500. With ride hailing, it will be, back of the envelope, a lot higher. And our bull case is out to $15,000. And in that bull case, we uh, assume that there's only a 30% chance uh, that they will get autonomous right at all, um, so and and we're assuming about thirty percent market share. Now, we do believe autonomous, if and when it works, is going to be a winner take most uh, business, and the determining factors behind the winners we believe is going to be well the best chip which Tesla has. And uh, the most data, they have, uh, we're calculating roughly 15 billion miles worth of real-world driving, not simulation, real-world driving. And uh, Google released its stat uh, a couple of months ago. They have a total of 200 million miles. So 200, I mean, 20 million. 20 million versus 15 billion. Uh, That's a huge difference. It's going to be very hard. Uh, to catch up with Tesla, certainly in the United States.
5: Kathy, it's Karen. First, you know, kudos. You've been right for so many years on this. But just looking at your notes, it looked like your bear case was 50 percent higher than here. So are you saying in no scenario do you see a possibility or probability of downside in Tesla?
11: In... in what's interesting about the bear case is uh, we assume that Tesla is going to lose market share, uh, going from roughly 17% of the global market last year to uh, it, uh, the five year forecast would be uh, about 11%. Mm-hmm. Um, what seems to be happening is they're gaining market share. Uh, and what also seems to be happening is this coronavirus crisis has forced other auto manufacturers for the sake of their balance sheets. Think about that, a year, a, a year ago, Tesla was going to run out of cash. Now it looks like a fortress, but now traditional auto manufacturers are cutting back, certainly on their autonomous, uh, but even we believe on their electric. All right, Kathy, we're
3: gonna leave it there. Always great to speak with you and get your perspective. Uh, thank, you, Melissa. thank you very much. Kathy Wood of ARK Invest. Uh, from the bull, we go to the bear. Tim,
7: you still short? sorry. You, so I think you were calling on me. Um, look, I, I think, again, I, you have to congratulate ARK Invest on being tremendously uh, committed to this investment. The, the upside as it relates to the technology uh, and SaaS is something that's very difficult to quantify. It is important to know that the company uh, ultimately, if it's about a free cash flow story, um, you know, free cash flow is not something that they've done you know, done very well. But but it, it's hard to argue with the fact that the competition, which I think there will be enormous competition. Um, and if there's a move to EV, I think it should be at Tesla's expense. But but for now, um, the reality is that the competition has been laying back. And, and that's you know maybe a, a testament to the, tech, the Tesla technology. But uh, the valuation makes zero sense to me. I've been very clear about that. Uh, but good for ARK Invest for, for being in the game.
3: All right, let's turn uh, from the road to the skies. Airline stocks rallying today, but there was one big standout. It's our call of the day. Southwest soaring on a double upgrade at Goldman Sachs, the firm taking its rating to a buy from a sell. Analysts believe Southwest's domestic focus protects it from a slow international air traffic recovery. Southwest is gaining nearly 10% today. Uh, Southwest is also one of the airlines that is extending the no-person-in-the-middle-seat rule for longer. Um, so, Bonowin, do you like Southwest here?
2: Um, listen, I, I don't want to single out Southwest. Truthfully, I, the whole airline sector, you know, there's so much volatility and seeming trading as, a, uh, as opposed to investing. I'm staying c- clear of it altogether. But I will say, um, and, and to, to um, some of the points that, that Goldman made, you know, Southwest is one of the best, if not the best, um, Uh, in terms from a balance sheet point of view in terms of the sector. I think they have about six billion dollars of debt versus five billion dollars of cash. So I can understand the bull case for it. Um, But much like I I alluded to when we were discussing Boeing, this is just isn't something that I care to speculate on and and jump in. I think we're very much still in the early stages of this game. And I'd rather have more information before I put my money to work.
3: Yeah. I mean, Guy, when Bono said, you know, he's basically not a trader, he's an investor. But when Kathy Wood, and I don't want to go back, but when Kathy Wood was talking about trading around her long position and it generated 300 basis points or 175 basis points in, in various periods, I thought that was fascinating.
6: Yeah. And that's why I asked the question, because, you, you know, we've had her on a number of times and a lot of the pushback we get is if, if, if they are so bullish there and if they have these kinds of price targets, why would they ever sell the stock? And she answered the question really well. And I understand exactly what's going on, but I thought it was important for it to get out there, number one. Number two, I think you're making the point, the same point about the airlines here. They've become tremendous trading vehicles, and we talk about it all the time. The one thing that concerned me today about Southwest, obviously on a big day, is it really didn't have a huge volume day. You know, it traded basically a normal volume day for the stock. And Delta, by the way, traded less than normal volume. I would have liked to have seen a, a sort of an indication that people were behind it. With the two times normal volume, we didn't see it today.
3: For more on Goldman's big Southwest upgrade, you can head on over to CNBC.com. Coming up, options traders are betting on a special delivery when FedEx reports tomorrow. We'll tell you just how high the stock could pop. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. FedEx reports earnings tomorrow. Let's get to Bonoan to break down the action. Hey, Bonoan.
2: Hey, so uh, taking a look at the sizzle um, options, uh, calls outpace puts about one and a half times to one, but I'll say the open interest is more evenly distributed here. Uh, taking a look at the at-the-money straddle out until this Thursday, it's implying about a 7.5% move in, the, in either direction between now and expiry, and that's in line with what we've seen over the last four fiscal quarters or so. But I will say is that this name does move quite a bit on earnings. I think it's got a range from about 35 to about 14 or 15%, so it is quite, it is quite volatile. Um, and the last thing that I'll say, um, the trade that really jumped out to me was the July 2nd expiry, 140 calls. Those are trading about $2.80, putting your uh, break even about 6.5%, playing for reversal in the stock.
3: All right. Thanks for that, Bonwin. for more options action, the full show is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Not this Friday, though, because it's a holiday. The following Friday, up next, Final Trades. That does it for us. Thanks for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 Mad Money with Jim Cramer. Starts right now.
4: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.